from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 2, Godzilla Origins, King Kong, and the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Kaiju fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. In this podcast, we'll be talking about King Kong 1933 and The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms 1953. We're going to present our thesis for how Godzilla came about, and then we will discuss the films and their effects on the Kaiju genre. We'll talk about the significance of these films, and then we'll discuss how important these movies are to Godzilla. So it'll be a little bit of a different episode than what you'll normally hear from us. All right, Brian, let's get to this. Our thesis about how Godzilla came about is this. Basically, King Kong plus the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms plus Japanese culture plus the hydrogen bomb test, all of those things together equals Gojira. Mm-hmm. First, we'll hit the very big blockbuster film, King Kong 1933. Yeah, this is a seminal movie in the history of film, not just in the United States, but around the world. It's arguably probably one of the most influential movies ever produced. Because the scale of the movie was so epic, it reigned supreme over other movies for at least 20 years, maybe more like 30. It really was that big. Although we're talking about this film in a kaiju podcast, King Kong is a giant monster. I don't know if this is actually a kaiju film or not, as far as just genre characteristics go. Yeah, there's debate among the fandom as to whether or not it does qualify as a kaiju film. It's more of a fantasy adventure jungle film to me that features a giant monster rather than being a full-blown kaiju film. And this was similar in a way to The Lost World from 1925, which the effects were also done by Willis O'Brien. The Lost World, it features dinosaurs, just as King Kong does. Another more recent jungle movie compared to King Kong was The Most Dangerous Game in 1932. Mm-hmm. Did you also, see that? No, I have not seen that, that, though that was also produced by Marion C. Cooper. Mm-hmm. It was created just one year before King Kong. I would consider probably Beast from 20,000 Fathoms to be the first American kaiju film. And I think all these ones before, I think they're more adventure films. Yeah, the kaiju genre didn't really kind of come into its own until really Gojira and what Japan and its films did with did with it. There, but there are still precedents from previous films that certainly lead up to it. Yeah. So King Kong was such a big movie in America and internationally. I think if we had just decided to start with the first Godzilla film from 1954 in this podcast, we'd almost would have implied that Gojira came out of nowhere and didn't have any influences. But instead, there are a lot of influences and a lot of precursors to to it. Yeah, a tremendous amount. I mean, I think the analogy I was using was that, you know, King Kong is kind of the, the grandfather of Godzilla and Kaiju, and then... That would make maybe Beast from 20,000 Fathoms kind of the the father of Godzilla, in a way? 
because it was the more immediate influence. Yeah. King Kong is impossible to ignore. And since King Kong came back not only once, but twice in Japanese cinema, it's clear that the Japanese filmmakers recognized King Kong as a very significant work. Oh, yeah. They loved it. Yeah. King Kong is loved in Japan. A significant thing for, uh, to this particular discussion is that King Kong, it was the film and the creature, really, were huge inspirations for many filmmakers. But the ones that are most pertinent to our discussion would be Ray Harryhausen, who was you know, an incredible special effects uh, creator in the, the 50s and 60s. Well, actually, well into uh, the 70s until about 1980 and doing a lot of stop motion stuff, much like Willis O'Brien. And also was it was also a huge inspiration for Eiji Tsuburaya, who created the special effects for Toho for most of Toho's Tokusatsu films. So, considering that you know Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms is also an immediate inspiration for for Gojira, the fact that it had such an impact on both of those men is something that needs to be considered when talking about these films. As far as the production of the film. This was a painstakingly creative film. I, I think oh, yeah. they said it took eight months in order to make this. And then the T-Rex battle with King Kong, just doing that scene took seven weeks. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder it looks fantastic. And they really used everything in the book that they could as far as special effects. They well, used stop motion, rear projection, matte paintings, miniatures, puppets everything yeah in fact i think willis o'brien and his team were inventing special effects techniques to use in this no one had really made a movie like this and they also had to they were layering the effects too so you had numerous things going on at the same time with the with the visual effects and some of it was double printed as well oh it's it's the craftsmanship that's in this film with the effects is is absolutely incredible. And even, you know, 85 years later, I still think the effects in this movie hold up. Even if you can kind of see some of the seams in it now, like if when you watch the animation for Kong, you can, since it's stop motion and you, when it's switching between frames, you can see the fingerprints from the animator that are on there. But I honestly, I don't really care because just the amount of creativity that's thrown into this, the hard work is just all on display yeah and that's why you could release it so many other times and you could still it it would it would hold up it held up for decades and i think people have no idea that king kong involves so many tricks such as like when they had people walking on treadmills yeah (laughs) and i it's hard to even notice really and i mean you know there was there would be on a treadmill and then there would be a back projection going on and then there'd be a, a tracking camera that would be displaying behind them and other such tricks like superimposed fog. And there are a lot more matte paintings in this movie than you would think there were. But there were a lot of them, but they looked so realistic that it all just fit in with everything else. Matte paintings are a lost art, in my opinion. And in the Godzilla series, there are so many matte paintings that are used and a lot of them I Still can't tell if it was a matte painting or if it wasn't. Yeah, they're beautiful. I mean, there have been a few matte paintings that I've seen in film or television that I say to myself, if I could get that and hang it up you know, on the side of my wall to kind of create this false scene or whatever, I think that would be really cool. And yeah, some of the other things that they used, it was like people projected onto cards 
and then sometimes it was stop motion people and it, but it's all blended so well and the movie they they, they use puppets and latex and rubber and rabbit fur and so many other things. King Kong, often in this, he was a foot and a half tall puppet. I think then when you compare it to the Godzilla movies with a guy in a suit made of latex and all that. And so I think it's, it's harder to notice in King Kong because it's blended so well. But I think it's often a lot of the same stuff that you see in the Godzilla movies as were used in King Kong, minus the stop motion. Yeah. There were actually two King Kong, I guess, rip-off movies made in Japan because they didn't have permission to be creating them at all. But I know, it's so weird. technically to, illegal, I guess. But Well, uh, uh, copyright laws were kind of weird and lax back then. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I guess they were destroyed in the war. We can't see them at all now. One was called Wasai Kingukongu, or Japanese King Kong. and Quite a was, creative uh, title. <laughs> yeah, and it was a silent film from 1933, the same year that the original came out. Mm-hmm. And the other one was Ido ni Aro Wareta Kingukongu, Henge no Maki, and that is called King Kong Appears in Ido, or which Ido was Tokyo. And that movie was from 1938. Yeah, the, the Japanese King Kong, I think I've actually heard that that RKO was at the very least aware of Japanese King Kong because it was made as something of a tie-in to the movie. And it's about King Kong, but yet it's not. It's actually about some guys who saw the original King Kong in Japan and then wanted to make a stage version of it. So they had a guy dressed up as King Kong and playing King Kong on stage so he could impress a girl. It's very strange. And then... The other film was, I don't know if RKO was aware of that one, but it's very bizarre. It's a period piece, and it's about, I believe it was a warlord of some kind who sends his pet gorilla to kidnap a princess to one of his, uh, the princess who's the daughter of one of his rivals. Sounds like a Mario prequel. Yeah, it does. (laughs) And the thing that's confusing about that one is that there are still images from that film that have survived and it looks like it actually has a giant ape sort of creature although he looks more like a yeti it's very strange but the plot descriptions act as though the ape type creature is normal sized so no one's quite sure what to make of it very interesting it kind of i think it kind of speaks to how big the original film was that we get all these adaptations and how this movie, the original, really transcended cultures. It it was such a, a spectacle that it was impossible to ignore. Yeah. So there are a lot of precedents that the original King Kong set for Gojira. And for kaiju cinema in general, really. Yeah, huge impact upon the genre as a whole. Yeah. The first one that I would bring up is that it uses one of the easiest ways that you could create a monster which is to take something that already exists and make it gigantic wherein king kong is a gorilla but he's a you know he's a 50 foot gorilla so that makes him even more terrifying and you'll see this in the godzilla series where 
mind you, Godzilla is a fictional dinosaur, but the idea is still very similar where you take something, uh, take a dinosaur and just make it gigantic because we have never found a dinosaur that was the same size as Godzilla or any of the other creatures that you'll see, you know, the other large dinosaurs, or you'll see it in other Toho films as well because you have Mothra. What is Mothra? Mothra is a moth, but gigantic. And there's also the the Japanese cultural input to Gojira, which is that the other part of Gojira, besides being a giant dinosaur, is also the dragon component. And yes. the, the folklore dragon component who breathes fire, only this time it's a nuclear fire. And so he's like, Godzilla is an interesting hybrid uh, of those things because you sort of Japanify you know, a, a dinosaur and then you turn it into a dragon kind of creature. Another important precedent that was set is in both King Kong and Gojira, the title creatures are worshipped or at the very least feared by primitive islanders as some sort of a deity. Although the details of that are a little bit different between the movies. It's kind of a chicken or the egg sort of situation that we have going on here. Whereas in King Kong, my interpretation is that the islanders discovered Kong and then ascribed him either deity or believed he was some sort of a spirit based off of their own superstitions. Whereas in Gojira, the Islanders' myth the of this sea dragon had existed already. It may have even existed for centuries before he even arrived. And it actually adds a little bit of ambiguity to the film because it begs the question of whether or not he actually is that mythic sea dragon and is fulfilling that legend or, you know, or if he really is just you know, a, an atomic mutation that showed up and just fit the role. But you also notice that in both movies, the Islanders offer uh, young maidens to to them as sacrifices in order to appease them. Whereas in Kong, that's a huge part of the plot. But in Gojira, it's just a creepy backstory that is thrown in to give you the impression of what kind of a monster that you're dealing with. It adds to the atmosphere. With Kong, I think I understood it as more of Kong's like a he's a force that has to be reckoned with and placated in that they obviously somebody built the wall to begin with. But then, you know, that was probably to keep him and all of the other very dangerous creatures on the other side of it. But also they just viewed King Kong as something to placate with women or like anything else that they could think of, they did whatever they had to do in order to keep Kong from breaking through and and killing everybody. Mm -hmm. The other thing in Kong that comes through is kaiju battles. We have a big battle between the T-Rex and King Kong. That's obviously the most iconic. At the end, we have the pulling apart of the the jaws Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. T-Rex. And then there's various creatures in King Kong that could be sort of plugged into Godzilla series or the Toho universe in a way. There's a flying monster, you know, looks like, like a pterodactyl, Pteranodon, yep. yeah. something like that. Uh-huh, pterodactyl thing that could could possibly be Rodan or if we're doing the Japanese name, it would be Radon. Then there's, there's a creature that looks a lot like Manda. Yeah, which is in, a serpent. Uh, yeah, which is in uh, Atragon and also Destroy All Monsters. And then we have other things such as train attacks that occurs in the Godzilla series at various points. Yeah, because the 
the creatures in both of these movies uh, come to civilize, civilization. They come into cities, into a strange new environment, and they go on a rampage and cause certain levels of destruction. Yeah, and then we have also monsters grabbing hold of women and carrying them. And or in in the case of uh, Sunda versus Gyra, we that was. He gets the, War of the Gargantuas. He, yeah, he gets the woman and actually eats her. Ew. And and then uh, there's the other part in uh, I believe it's Godzilla 1984 where Godzilla looks through a window and mm-hmm. and reacts. Mm-hmm. And there's a part in King Kong where he looks through the window. I think that's actually a funny image for me is the part where King Kong plays sort of the peeping tom and he yeah and right in there when uh, she's with Driscoll. And he's telling her, oh, you're going to be safe now. Then meanwhile, right behind her, there's Kong looking through the window. And then he makes that face. <laughs> and then and then it's like, oh, no, you're not safe. Um, but there are a number of things that... And then, like, the um, the p- pulling apart the jaws in yeah, battle. The, some, yeah, some of Kong's battle tactics are actually copied uh, in the Godzilla series. Yeah, and that was used in Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla yep. 1974. When uh, Mechagodzilla, as when he's in... The and Godzilla disguised as Godzilla. Yeah. yeah, when he's appearing as Godzilla, he does that to Anguirus. Yep. Some of the themes that we get from King Kong in the Godzilla series, too. We have the big one, which is the natives on a remote island idea. Mm-hmm. And that happens in Mothra and from 1961. That happens in King Kong versus Godzilla with when they reproduce the Kong island um, and then there's Mothra versus Godzilla with the natives. Yeah, they bring Mothra. Infinite Island back yep. several times. Yeah, and then Undiscovered Islands in general, where we have um, Ebera. That's mm-hmm. that's another case where you have natives. And then you have the big th- one of the other big themes is the exploitation theme that was yeah. brought by Carl Denham uh, in King Kong, but the exploitation theme was used in Mothra and King Kong versus Godzilla by Mr. Taco, and then Mothra versus Godzilla too, mm-hmm. with the, our uh, two businessmen who want to make a whole bunch of money off of the egg. And so there are a number of themes that come back from King Kong and are sort of echoed in in various parts of the Godzilla series. Another interesting facet is that. It can be argued that both King Kong in 1933 and Godra in 1954 are tragic figures. Now, they aren't necessarily tragic figures because the characters are sympathetic toward them. That's not true at all. When both creatures die, despite the characters not being sympathetic toward them, despite the destruction that they cause, my understanding is that audiences were very emotional at the moments of their death. And there's, you know, interesting ways to kind of look at that with Kong. It's probably because he's portrayed as an animal who doesn't exactly know what is going on. He just thinks he's trying to protect some new plaything that he has. And he's in a strange environment, doesn't know what's going on. And with Gojira, some interpret him as being as much a scarred victim of war and the bomb as, say, Sarazawa was in the original film. Whether that is an accurate interpretation is up for debate, but it's an interesting thought nonetheless. I think Kong is a representation of the natural world and that because he was found on Skull Island and came from such an ancient, you know, it's like ancient times, still like a little bubble of it left. And so 
I, I think it was seeing that kind of death of the nat, you know, representation of the natural world, on you know, in an unnecessary way. Yeah, I can unnecessary see that. death, and so I think that was what endeared the audience to King Kong a little bit more. So we have a sequel to King Kong, and that is Son of Kong. It was released in the same year. And Six months after the original was released. Yeah, and Ruth Rose, who wrote the screenplay for the original and the screenplay for Son of Kong, we talked about this a little bit in the introduction episode, in episode one. We found this marvelous quotation from her, and she said, if you can't make it bigger, make it funnier. Yeah. And that's that's what this whole movie is about is making it more is making it funnier because you can't top the original no you can't Uh, catching that lightning in a bottle again was going to be impossible and so this single sentence it it made it really explains a number of the films in the godzilla series because not all of those are very you know dead serious either we have things like son of godzilla which is i think probably a callback to this in a number of ways only yeah. a japanese uh take on it of course so clearly i'm i'm quite sure that when toho created son of godzilla i'm pretty sure that they had seen son of kong at some point because there are a lot of similarities in in especially tone wise yeah toho also did its own son of title giving an offspring to their iconic monster and making the offspring a bit sillier and a goofier and not quite as competent as the father. Although in this case, the uh, Godzilla is actually involved with his son as opposed to being long gone like it was for Kiko. So after Son of Kong, we have a lot more King Kong movies that were both in Japan and over here. The first one is King Kong versus Godzilla, and that's from 1962. It is going to be one of our future episodes. Later on in 1967, we have King Kong Escapes, and that was also a Japanese film. In 1976, there was a remake of King Kong produced by Dino De Laurentiis, and then 10 years later in 1986, he produced a sequel called King Kong Lives. Probably the most notable sequel of the series was in 2005 with the Peter Jackson remake. And then finally, most recently, we have Kong Skull Island, which is being produced by Legendary. Well, I think that wraps up our Kong coverage. Let's move on to the other highly influential movie on Gojira. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was a film that I just saw for the first time maybe a couple of years ago. In my opinion, it's arguably America's first kaiju film. And I, it doesn't have an adventure epic really surrounding it. It's very much a 50s science fiction film. Yeah, and the beast is the only monster in the entire film, too. Yeah. It's interesting to note that this was not entirely original. It was actually inspired by a Ray Bradbury short story. And I don't know if anyone from Toho had seen, had read the short story. They certainly saw the film But if King Kong is the grandfather of Godzilla and the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is the father of Godzilla, I kind of like to think of the short story as the distant uncle to the Gojira film. Interestingly, it was originally published under the title Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, but then 
after the movie was released and became a huge hit, the title was changed to The Foghorn. I'm not sure why, but that's what they did. The similarities between the film and the short story are kind of few, though. If you've seen the movie, there is a scene of this in the film. There is a part where the creature does attack a lighthouse and there are a couple of lighthouse keepers in there, but it's just it's just one of the beats in a larger story that's going on. And like I said, while I'm not sure that the guys at Toho read the story, there's still some interesting similarities between Gojira and the short story. Like Godzilla, the the monster in this story is a is a tragic figure, a thing a victim of things beyond its control. In this creature's case, as the reader is told by the old keeper, It heard the distant call of the foghorn from the deeps, as he put it, and journeyed long and far, subsisting on fish, so that it might find another of its kind and no longer be lonely. Discovering that its journey was in vain, it lashes out at the lighthouse. Godzilla, uh, it could be argued, is a victim of the nuclear bomb. He is revived and mutated by its radiation and then strikes out at humanity. This is why his death at the end of the film arouses sympathy from the audience. He was, in some ways, as much of a victim of war as Sarazawa was. So the Japanese didn't really copy this movie as much as they just gave it a really big twist on a central idea. And in G-Fan magazine, we find out that the working title of Gojira was The Monster from 20,000 Miles Under the Sea. And so, I mean, that's uh, kind of a dead giveaway. Yeah. Um, so obviously this movie had a big influence on the final product that it was is rele- Gojira. Yeah, it was released only a year before Gojira was released in Japan as well as 1953. Right. So this is the first time that we have nuclear testing introduced in a kaiju film. This is before the Lucky Dragon number no. 5 incident and before the Bikini Island test. And so we have the story element of a nuclear test awakening a kaiju. Yeah, it was a trope that eventually became very common in 50 science fiction films because radiation was the new scientific mystery that was still not fully understood. So you could, in a story sense, say that it could do weird things to organisms and create other creatures and monsters with it. Although the kaiju in this case, in this movie, isn't he isn't radiated, but he has biological. He brings like ancient viruses and, yes. and or bacteria with him, and then it gets people sick. But the the real but then there's a twist with radioactivity in that they use a radioactive radioactive weapon, isotope. Yeah, in order to to kill him at the end, and so that's where the radioactivity comes back again. Yeah. The movie sets up the great idea of what if a prehistoric creature came back to life in modern times. And it's a little bit different from King Kong in that the monster wasn't just running around, you know, completely lifelike and animated. But then this one, it's the it's the stress of the nuclear bomb that gets it out of the ice and everything. And then it's just running around again. Yeah, it was uh, trying to, I think it was, they said it was trying to return to its uh, nesting grounds or something like that. Yeah, there's scientific explanations offered for the motivations of the creature, but it's very much an animal. It's not really a character. No, and and it doesn't have a name either. Uh, It's just the Retosaurus. It's a fictional Uh dinosaur. Yeah. And the, I think it's important to note that this is where the kaiju film sort of begins in a way because 
we actually there's actually some time spent in the movie on where our scientist he says look this thing cannot exist it would be a hundred million years old it would have had it wouldn't have been eating anything in that whole time and so i guess it was just what living off of its fat or something like a a bear that was a hundred million years and so but what what we're setting up here is that this is more fantasy at the end of the day than it is sci-fi almost right because it would have to be over a hundred million years old. That's, that's and that's exactly what the scientist says. And then he said that you know how did this thing survive? And so you're bringing a necessary amount of fantasy into the story in order for this thing to exist. It's kind of interesting to note that usually in a story like this, that sort of an explanation is just something that's given and then you accept it. But in here, we actually have a character questioning the the validity of it. The other part of it is that the existence of it is even called into question because only two guys see it at the beginning. Yeah. And then it's gone. And then it actually realistically goes about saying, well, really, what if this happened? I imagine probably a lot of people's reaction would be, no, you did not see that. You're crazy. Oh, yeah. And and so it, I, I like how the movie actually wrestles with that concept. Yeah, it's actually not unlike the, the Loch Ness Monster in a way. Yeah, it's probably about the same way that if somebody said they saw the actual Loch Ness Monster and everybody would say, okay, you need to see a psychiatrist immediately. Yeah, so at first, Professor Nesbitt is kind of discredited because he he keeps saying that he saw something that nobody else believes. And then when it starts, when there's more evidence that starts appearing that it actually does exist, then that's when people go back to him and they're like, wait a minute, maybe we judged this too quickly at the first time. And so I, I think it's, it's interesting. And then he, he comes around and, and he ends up being the expert and he says, look, this thing really does exist. And then they argue it out to see if this thing's real. And finally, and I think it's it's really setting up the kaiju kaiju genre in in a way, because these concepts aren't really wrestled with as much in Gojira, the movie. Actually, yeah. this film also sets up the ability of kaiju to travel over long distances. That whole idea. Yeah, and, and even though these things would be theoretically pretty darn slow because they're just so big. But this this sort of brings us the idea that they can move a little bit faster than one would think, even though it was pretty relatively slow in this. But in in the Godzilla series, the monsters can move over quite a long distance. And I even forget if they aren't flying. Yeah, I forget. Was the Retosaurus swimming or traveling over land in this? I think it was sort of like a traveling along the coast thing some of the time. Okay, and that's why it got to the lighthouse and yeah. I was just wondering, things. but because... it also hit boats, and so maybe yeah, it wasn't. It, it might have been. It might be a combination because that was one of the ways that Toho would kind of get around it because they would have the monsters swimming, and it's feasible that. You know, they could have some interesting swimming techniques to get around, you know, cross distances faster. Yeah. And in the Godzilla series in later movies, you have Mothra being able to fly to New York, New Kirk City. And then uh, in Destroy All Monsters, for instance, Godzilla can travel to New York City and Manda can travel to London and then back to Tokyo. Yeah, actually. I thought, wow, that's a distance. I was going to say, now that I think about it, Godzilla would have had to use the Panama Canal, really, to <laughs> get there, wouldn't he? I would have noticed that. 
one of the coolest connections, I think, between this and the original Gojira film is how Professor Elson treats the found you know, the finding of the monster. He says, maybe not kill or destroy this thing, because maybe we should be using using this monster for research. And we yeah. should try to see if we can capture it in order to study it. Yeah, he's essentially the proto-Yamane in Gojira. It yeah, I think, I think they might have gotten the idea from this movie. Some other precedents that the this film sets up that are used in Gojira is the Redosaurus is an ancient dinosaur that's revived by nuclear tests, as we had mentioned. Although, in this film, it serves more as just a means of explaining the creature's origins, whereas Gojira is supposed to be an atomic allegory. He is the bomb made flesh, essentially. So it plays a much larger thematic role than it does in Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Uh, and it, although this difference is one of the ways you can see you know, the difference in attitudes between Americans and Japanese toward nuclear bombs after World War II. Dr. Elson descends into in a diving bell to see the creature. And when I was watching this movie, I was astonished at how this scene, which comes about halfway through the movie, is had to have served as the inspiration for the climax of Gojira because you have a very similar scene where two characters are descending into the ocean to find the titular creature. In that case, they were wearing diving suits. And instead of trying to locate the creature for the use and study... They had a device with them that they were going to use to kill it. But the similarities with the underwater photography and the black and white imagery, it's undeniable that Honda and company obviously took this scene from Beast and used it as the inspiration for that sequence. Another interesting thing, as we've also mentioned, is the use of the radioactive isotope to kill the creature at the end. And this is a tactic that was utilized in the Godzilla series in some similar ways. Most notably, it happened in Godzilla versus Biollante, where a soldier has a bazooka. And I believe they used a bazooka in this film uh, as well, right? Uh, to kill the creature. No, it was a sharpshooter. It was a, it was a military yeah. sniper. Yeah, it was a sniper. Yeah. And so in Godzilla versus Biollante, you had a soldier with a bazooka who had a shell that was filled with anti-nuclear energy bacteria that he shoots into Godzilla's mouth as a means of killing him. I think there are a lot of, so many similarities between Gojira and King Kong and Beast from 20,000 Fathoms that it's arguable that, you know, this might be where we're going with our thesis here, but it's arguable that, that Godzilla, there, there are a lot of American foundations to Godzilla as a creation. Yeah. And it, it's not obviously there's a huge difference fundamentally between Gojira and the Beast in 20,000 Fathoms physically. And obviously there isn't a huge Japanese cultural component to it. Uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms? To, yeah, the Beast yeah. from 20,000 Fathoms. But we have that, that's part of our thesis, though, is that we have King Kong plus Beast from 20,000 Fathoms plus Japanese culture plus the atomic testing. And that is what gave rise to Gojira as a phenomenon. But yeah, but uh, two of those, well, three of those things are essentially American creations. Yeah. So between King Kong and Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, 
we really have a lot of similarities and a lot of really interesting things that ended up being translated into Gojira as a character, as a phenomenon. As a film. As a film. It's impossible really to ignore the inputs for Godzilla when discussing Godzilla and as a, as a series and as a, as a phenomenon. Yeah. And I, I would like everyone to know that we're not saying that Gojira is a ripoff of either one of these movies. The attitude that Tomiyuki Tanaka and Ashiro Honda and all the rest of the creators on that film, their attitude was that they're, they were taking these things that they had seen in these other films and their attitude was, okay, we're going to take some of this stuff and then we're going to make it better. Something truly unique and something very Japanese in origin. Yes. They're, as, as Solomon is oft quoted as saying, there is nothing new under the sun. So the best you can do is, if you really dig deep enough, you know, you're not going to find an original story out there. But what makes your story unique is the spin that you put on it, the unique elements that you bring to it because of your culture and your view on things. And your experiences, especially yes. given the nuclear tests that occurred right as they were beginning to make uh, the original Gojira. Yes. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Gojira 1954, the original Japanese masterpiece. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!